This episode is sponsored by Moxtra, the winner of the Best Digital Banking Solution Provider at the 2020 Banking Technology Awards. Hello and welcome to What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me this week are Sharon Kamathu, my editor at Fintech Futures. Hey! And Lena Ayer, Chief Branding Officer at Moxtra. Hi there. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, this week, we're going to be chatting about all sorts to do with uh, bank branches in the COVID-19 pandemic, cashless societies, and Moxtra's win at the Banking Technology Awards. Uh, but first up, as usual, is our Week in Numbers segment. Uh, we've gone out and found stories with some interesting figures in their headlines to talk about. Uh, Lena, you're our guest, so you have the honour of being up first. Um, what's your weekly number story? Fantastic. Yeah. So my weekly number story is that Free Trade, a UK-based fintech serving retail investors, has announced that it's in the process of closing a 50 million GBP Series B round. It's led by New York-based growth equity firm Left Lane Capital, a previous investor in N26, and a current backer of M1 Finance. The round marks Free Trade's biggest yet. A growth fund owned by L. Catterton, an American-French private equity firm focused on consumer brands, is also joining the round. Draper Esprit, which led Free Trade's 10.8 million Series A round back in 2019, is also involved. Part of the round is yet to close, with free trade relying on a secondary opportunity it's making available to all existing shareholders. This includes 13,000 individual investors who have taken part in free trade's seven crowdfunding campaigns. According to Sky News, around £35 million will be made up of new shares, while the rest will be from sales by existing investors. Uh, Yeah, this is an interesting one about uh, a free trade, one of the... um the, big, the names to benefit from the surge in retail investment that came from the, the GameStop saga earlier this year. Yeah. Uh, also one that um, uh, was one of the ones that turned on its banking partners when stocks were frozen, uh, particularly leveling label on Barclays, I think it was, for, for severely limiting its options. Um, I mean, this this series has probably been in the round and been in the works for a while, but it'd be interesting to see how the fortunes of of startup and new retail investment apps like this uh, move throughout the year and particularly on you know, whether they want to expand into, into the European market. Uh, Lena, I remember you, you said before we came on air that you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, expansion into Europe. So uh, if you, if, if you want to kick off with that, please feel, feel free to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just think that in general for fintech startups, it's absolutely critical to have a um, European presence in today's world. I mean, it's a global it's a global world we're living in. Everybody's connected. Uh, the only differentiator is time zones. And so I think it makes sense that they're trying to expand into Europe. And I think I, I did read that it was, um, you know, they were looking at the Netherlands and Ireland and a few different bases. And uh, yeah, I just think it makes sense. Yeah, I think the thing with free trade as well, when it comes to their European expansion that I, I found a bit interesting is how it hasn't actually delivered on any of its promises. Um, so it announced plans to move to the Netherlands and Ireland over a year ago. And the Ireland launch actually never happened. And the Irish Independent reported in February this year that free trade would launch in the region following the GameStop saga, but the startup's waiting list is still live. 
And the Netherlands launch as well still hasn't happened according to its blog. Uh, free trade is only live in the UK. And uh, their investors as well have spoken to our reporter Ruby in the past, and they shared their frustration at the company's habit of promising rollouts, which just don't seem to happen. Um, and it's, it seems to be that maybe they're over-promising and under-delivering. Cool. Well, uh, I think you've, you've set me up perfectly there, Sharon. I, I appreciate it for a, a well-crafted segue, because uh, speaking of uh, over-promising and under-delivering, um, my number this week, uh, for the weekly numbers, is 65%. And that, uh, that figure is the percentage of financial institutions signed up to the UK's, UK Treasury's Women in Finance Charter. Um, 65% of them failed to meet their 20, 2020 targets. Uh, it's important to note uh, that those figures are for those who actually signed up, not for those who did not. So there could be those who didn't sign up who also didn't meet the uh, meet the, the the equity required. So this charter uh, is in its fourth year now, and it measures uh, measures, fir- measures firms based on the percentages of women in their senior management positions. Um, of the 209 signatories, only 72 reported meeting their 2020 targets, and only 10 of them held complete gender parity, one of those being the Treasury itself. Uh, average female representation as a percentage of senior management sat at 32% in 2020, an increase of just 1% from the year prior. Now, some of the names on the uh, on the, on the naughty list uh, include both the, the Financial Conduct Authority and the Bank of England. So they both missed their targets as well as uh, Nutmeg, Monzo, Paysafe, Refinitiv, and Funding Circle, among others. Um, for, for the bank side, we have uh, Credit Suisse, Lloyds, UBS, BNY Mellon, Standard Chartered Bank, and Deutsche Bank. They all fell behind. Um, of the 137, which didn't meet their targets, 75 claimed that they are on track, while 18 said that they were not. Uh, 44 of the 137 uh, missed the reporting deadline entirely. Um, the most common reasons for missing the reported uh, the reporting deadline were that the targets were simply, uh, or the deadlines rather, were too ambitious to quote, or that hiring and pay freezes had affected things during the pandemic. Uh, other reasons cited included uh, restructuring, mergers or acquisitions, uh, reduced headcount growth, drops off in recruitment activity, uh, as well as low turnover in senior management and high turnover of senior women. So, coming after. Uh, what has been a wave of positivity from International Women's Day and and, and it's still being International Women's Month. Uh, this is a bit of a reminder, if one was even needed, that we still have quite a long way to go in the industry. And I, I do recall seeing on Twitter uh, not too long ago an account set up uh, to automatically tweet banks, uh, the banks' Women's Day, the International Women's Day messages alongside a screenshot of their pay gap statistics, which I thought was quite witty. And I hope that uh, we see more of that in future, more accountability online please i think a few banks ended up deleting their original tweets because of it um but you know i can see your your hand up um what are your thoughts on this story yeah what i was gonna say is that i think that um it's really unfortunate that we're we're um in a circumstance that this is a case and i think that the the other thing is that the metrics are just a reflection of culture uh, you know, a lot of times I see businesses focus on, well, we have, you know, X amount of women or we have X amount of this. And I think a more important measure is the the qualitative one. How do people feel at that company? You know, do they feel 
that their their voice is represented? Do they feel heard? Do they feel understood? And I think it's unfortunate that we're, we're in a situation where women aren't represented as as much. And I think that, you know, the business, the businesses that don't do that are the ones that will lose out. Because I do think that women bring a unique perspective. Um, uh, they bring something different to, you know, the workplace. They bring something different to strategic problem solving. Um, and I think that, you know, the businesses that don't have that competitive advantage, shall we say, uh, will lose out. Yeah, we've spoken about um, the situation quite a lot in this podcast before. And I mentioned as well the challenging conditions that we women have had to endure since lockdown in my editor's pick for the March Banking Tech magazine and the Women's History Month edition. Um, and I break down a recent World Bank report, which shows that although women gained legal rights in nearly 30 countries last year, despite the disruption due to COVID-19, it urged governments to do more to ease the disproportionate burden shouldered by women during the pandemic, as progress on equal rights was threatened by heavier job losses in female-dominated sectors, increased childcare, and a surge in domestic violence. And women with children now spend an average of 65 hours a week on the unpaid chores, nearly a third more than fathers, according to the Boston Consulting Group, which questioned parents in five countries. And women need the support at home first and foremost in order to enable them to thrive in the workplace. Also, a study by law firm Fox & Partners found that female directors at Britain's biggest financial firms earn 66% less than their male counterparts on average. And the report examined pay gaps in financial firms that are among the nation's 350 largest listed companies. And I think I've mentioned this too um, when we were talking about diversity and inclusion in the past, that it has been such a pain as well trying to obtain this information and the reporting from firms when, when I've asked them during my reach outs. It's like they feel a certain sense of stigma about it. But the way I see it is that it's better to know in order for us to address it. Keeping people in the dark is not going to help matters at all. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's a it's an interesting segue into my news and numbers um, for sure. So so my number as well, because Alex was talking about more social accountability online, um, and this is definitely something that has come about from it. So thirteen first year analysts. Uh, in Goldman Bank, in Goldman Sachs Investment Bank division, revealed long hours and a stressful working environment. So the leaked internal presentation by Goldman was titled "Working Conditions Survey," and it was posted on Twitter on 18th March. So again, social media coming in there for the rescue. Um, so the inspection of the document suggests that it was made by Hemel Thacker, who is a Goldman Sachs vice president based in San Francisco. And CNBC reports that the presentation was drawn up by junior bankers themselves trying to highlight their issues. So it's good that they're putting it out there. And the presentation um, notes that on average, first-year analysts are working over 95 hours per week and sleeping five hours per night. So the mean figure was 105 hours, which was the answer to the question, how many hours have you worked this week, ending 13th February 2021. It also showed details of complaints from analysts of worsening mental and physical health conditions. So one slide labeled select analyst quotes consisted of feedback given by junior staff. It included uh, some of the following distressing uh, details. So uh, one quote read, uh, the sleep deprivation, the treatment by senior bankers of the mental and physical stress. I've never been, I've been through foster care and this is arguably worse. 
Another says, I can't sleep anymore because my anxiety levels are through the roof. Others say my, my body physically hurts all the time and mentally I'm in a really dark place. Being unemployed is less frightening to me than what my body might succumb to if I keep up this lifestyle. There was a point where I was not eating, showering or doing anything else other than working from morning until after midnight. And this one is particularly pertinent, which is what is not okay to me is the 110 to 120 hours of the course of a week. The maths is simple. That leaves four hours a day for eating, sleeping, showering, bathroom, and general transition time. This is beyond the level of hardworking. This is inhumane slash abuse. So in addition to those grueling hours, they also complained of mistreatment in the workplace. So 77% of those surveyed said that they feel that they had been victim of workplace abuse and 75% said that they had considered counseling due to the stress of the job. All 13 said that they have been given unrealistic deadlines, most reported being micromanaged, and 92% said that they were frequently ignored in meetings. Um, so the document as well stated that junior bankers should not be expected to do any work after 9 p.m. Friday or all day Saturday without a pre-approved exception, as that is the only safeguarded personal time that we get. And um, I, I believe that uh, the CEO as well, um, further developments from this on, on the Monday or this week, uh, said that they were actually going to cut that rule down so uh, these analysts can enjoy their their Saturday, which is, I, I feel, the minimum. Um, but yes, of course, the presentation suggested setting a maximum of, of 80 hours uh, a week in order to work. Um, but I just want to highlight that in the UK, we do still follow the working time directive, which provides for a right to work no more than 48 hours per week. It doesn't have the same in the US, so I don't really know where these um, analysts were um, filling their forms in from. Perhaps it was San Francisco, and that's definitely food for thought. But I know that I've been banging on for a while now. So, Alex, did you have anything to share about this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... Um... It's uh, it's in. Uh, I mean, first off, thanks for, for a great overview of, of the article, Sharon. I know that it's been a particularly popular article on our site as well over the past few weeks. But I think this is this is indicative of the um, the culture that exists around. I think financial services in general. We've we've quite rightly lambasted um, fintechs for the the hustle culture, startup culture that has worn a lot of people down and seen a lot of people quit their jobs in that industry. So it's only right that we turn around and have a have a crack at Goldman for this because it's absolutely unacceptable on all levels. Um, I mean, uh, it mentions in the article that Goldman chief executive David Solomon. Um, said that working from home was an aberration, uh, that it didn't fit in with companies that were, in his words, innovative, collaborative, and have an apprenticeship culture that's not ideal for them. Uh, it's not a new normal. Um, but it goes to show that there is, uh, I mean, and the bank also blamed it on having uh, surging uh, business and that the fact that they're, they're having lots of that they're doing really well right now. Which I feel, feel is like its own turnaround kind of like, humble brag um but yeah it's an interesting one it's a question i think the people uh, the people are moving towards this idea of wanting to work from home more often and in the the coronavirus pandemic has highlighted the ease of which that can be done also it's highlighted to people the worth they can have uh in this sort of hybrid environment of work and home it has its drawbacks but also has its benefits i remember um speaking to uh someone um Someone not too long ago, and they said that they were they they were at a round table with a few bank executives, and the the question was posited. It was like, would you 
rather work like would you rather work a hundred hours a week and earn a million pounds or would you rather work 20 hours a week and earn like fifty thousand pounds and they were shocked when one when one person said i'd rather work the the 20 hours and be paid fifty thousand. to be honest and i think that goes to show that like they're in some ways the sort of success now numbers driven game can sort of leave behind a bit of the humanity in it uh, it's definitely been one that we've seen a lot of people reading it on our site, so it seems to chime with a lot of people. Um, I've rambled now as well, so I'm going to give Lena a chance to, to chime in with her thoughts. Yeah, I was going to say that life is a multifaceted experience, and I think that it is. it doesn't make sense to overemphasize one um, in lieu of others. And so I think that, you know, the the, the transition to work from home, while not perfect, has a lot of advantages. I mean, you know, people have, hopefully in most cases, slightly better work-life balance. Uh, they have more freedom and accountability on their time. I do think when people were forced to go into the office every day from, you know, nine to five or whenever it is, that there was so much time wasted in the commute, in the, you know, uh, office chatter and, and just spending time there. And I think that it seems really odd that someone would label it an aberration. Uh, and I think it's very telling because, you know, they're not necessarily concerned and they're not even trying to show that they're concerned with the lives of their analysts. Um, you know, they're trying to create a workshop and they want everybody in the workshop so they can monitor exactly what they're doing and how long they're there. And, you know, time, time will tell whether that helps their bottom line. But the, the inclination is that in today's world, um, better rounded people do better. You know, they're happier. They're, they're mentally more well-adjusted. Um, they're more able to um, deal with the many different aspects of their life. And as a result, I think that they're more productive when it comes to their work. I feel like the world's most successful people, you know, experts in their field will all say that it's not necessarily how many hours you log a day, but it's the amount of focus that you bring when you do spend time on what you do. And it's about... Um, having the right mind frame and the right attitude when you approach your work uh, that takes it to the next level. And so, you know, when it comes to this, I think time will tell, but it seems like an extremely unhealthy, abusive culture. And I can't imagine that uh, compromising on the health and wellness of your employees is, is a you know good choice in the long run. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And and one more point, um, because I, I felt like I was rambling on for a while, so I, I wanted to give this later. But um, when looking at reactions to this story um, in various social media outlets, it was telling that some of the um, older people, I've got to be honest here, it's not ageist, it's just being factual, would then revert with, oh, boo-hoo, we all had to do it. I was an analyst once and I had to do this. I went through it as well. Well, that's not helpful. It's like, well, sorry, love, what you went through as well was abuse. Just because you are coming to terms with that now and you are pushing back by saying this behavior doesn't need um, to be to be looked at at all is not helpful. That was abuse. We're sorry it happened to you. But you know what? This is a new day and we can actually make a change and we can make a difference for the generations below us. That's what it's about. It's about making sure that the generations that come after us have it better, not necessarily easier. I don't think their lives will, will be easier at all. It, it's still going to be work. It's not that they're doing any less work. It's just that they will actually have a life. They will be able to live a life as opposed to just living to work. 
you know, so so I think that was also quite telling too. And especially when one of the comments highlighted how it's very well and good, David Solomon saying this out of his, um, I think it was in the Bahamas or something like that in, in his holiday home. And he's telling people to go back to work. It's like, well, you're not at work. So why are you telling us to go back to, to the office when you're just having fun in your holiday home? So yeah, I just thought that was also something to, to highlight the double standards as well with all of this shocking yeah absolutely it's really um it is shocking but i think that it's not uh, to a certain degree it's not surprising i think there is more accountability in today's world people could get away with things that they they just can't today which is a very good thing and i think that you know hopefully over time not just at goldman sachs but i think in general you know abusive culture gets rooted out and should get rooted out um, and hopefully prompt change uh, in the industry where, wherever it's needed. Here we are in part two of the podcast. This is our more interview start section where we focus the discussion into a specific industry sector or topic. Uh, before Sharon asks her questions, however, I'm going to give Lena a chance to introduce herself a little bit more, uh, talk a bit about Moksha and what the day-to-day looks like at the company. So uh, take it away, Lena. Yeah, thank you so much. So a little bit about us. Moksha was founded on delivering a new generation of collaboration experiences that are designed for you know this mobile-first digital age we're living in. You know, the, the insight our founders had uh, is that in today's world, Businesses need a super convenient digital destination where customers can reach in and, you know, get this one-stop service experience. And um, what I mean by one-stop is this idea that if you look at companies that have done very well on mobile, things like Uber, things like Instacart, things like DoorDash, they've been able to provide their users with a one-stop service experience. In that, you know, people enter the Uber app and end to end, they have this uh, service experience around booking a ride and they don't have to leave the app and everything is done for them. And so, you know, if that's the case for consumer services, why shouldn't that be the case for business services? And so what we do, our platform powers one-stop customer portal apps, helping businesses manage and grow their customer accounts, accelerate, you know, document-centric workflows, lower cost of doing business and enabling them to provide this high touch service experience on um, digital channels, especially mobile. Yes, and congratulations on winning the Best Digital Banking Solutions Provider Award for Moxtra's Digital Branch Solution at the 2020 Banking Tech Awards. Can you tell us a little bit more about the tech behind the win? Yeah, absolutely. So our platform powers a just-in-time service experience. And what it does is it enables businesses to provide high-touch service experiences as they need uh, while lowering the cost of doing business. And our platform has been built over several years um, you know, with a banking angle, it's interesting because we actually built our platform in partnership with several of the world's leading financial institutions. Um, and, and they use our platform to, to power their business with rigorous compliance, um, security, auditability, e-paper trails that are you know, required and necessary 
in a in a digital world for banking. And so what we're able to do for them is that we're we're able to power a one-stop customer portal app um, independently, or we're able to extend their existing apps um, and sort of build out these one-stop capabilities as a fluid extension of an existing website, um, web app, or mobile app. And so that's been really interesting to to work in the banking space, especially in this time, um, and help them bring these experiences to life. And what do you think is the future for branches amid the pandemic? And where does it fit in a cashless society? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. If you, if you ask me, honestly, I would say virtual branches are the future. I think that a bank can power a branch in every customer's pocket for a fraction of the cost of running, running one single branch, which is just astronomical, if you can imagine that. And the virtual branch uberizes the traditional bank branch. It takes the on-demand convenience and flexibility of a digital solution like we talked about and then translates that to banking. And if you think about what the implications of that are, is that it basically provides this all-in-one experience that simulates the in-person interactions that take place at a physical branch um, and allows people to mirror that experience so they don't sort of miss the face-to-face interaction. And then, of course, I think that there will be, you know, bank branches in place for, for situations where necessary, but I think they're going to be far and few between. Think about the lifestyles that most of us live. We're on the go. We're we're traveling. Well, pre-COVID, we were. Let's see. Let's see what it looks like after. Um, but it doesn't support going into a bank branch, waiting in line, and to to speak with your banker. You know, you want to be able to pick up your phone, especially for for uh, high touch services where you where you're paying for things like banking, and uh, talk to your banker or ask a question or check in with something. Um, and I think that virtual branches are going to offer a convenience that uh, physical branches are just not able to deliver to. And what are Moxtra's plans for the rest of the year? And what are the predictions for the landscape next year? Yeah, so our plans are to continue helping businesses deliver these client experiences for the digital age. And I think, you know, for the next year, it's, it's going to be an interesting time. We're in an interesting time in history. Um, I think I read a statistic the other day that said that during the pandemic, we accelerated digital transformation uh, in one year with what we would have ordinarily done in 10 years. Um, and now, you know, as things are easing up, the vaccines are coming out and we're, we're heading back to the workplace. I think there's going to be an interesting shift in from the exclusively work from home and exclu- exclusive uh, digitization of remote work to sort of a hybrid of things. So it'll be interesting to see where things land. Uh, but I do think digital is here to stay. I think the convenience of digital solutions are here to stay. Uh, and now it's going to be about finding a happy medium for businesses. How much in-person contact is necessary, you know, to, to turn back to the original points, how much do you need employees to come into work? What is actually productive? And then in terms of a customer experience standpoint, you know, is it necessarily viable and helpful for your customers to meet them in person? Or is it easier to provide them experiences on digital channels just in time um, and respond as, as they need it and respond to their demands versus pushing out notifications to them? So I think there's going to be a lot of change in that way, finding a nice balance. Um, And I'm interested to see how the industry evolves. 
Here we are in part three for the FinTech Jail. This is where we ask for an industry term, buzzword or trend that our guest has had. Simply enough of Sharon and I will then debate whether it deserves a place in the jail or if it's already in there, an extended sentence. Uh, so Lena, what term do you wish to see locked away forever? The term that I, I'd like to see underused would be disrupt and disruptor. I think it's just become such jargon, it's so overused, and it's lost its meaning. Um, it, it, if you look at the word disrupt, it sort of has this pejorative connotation. It's quite negative. It's this, oh, well, we're going to go in and it's breaking things. And, it, and it's sort of tra been transformed to say, well, anything is a disruptor, right? Like uh, any new technology, well, it's disrupting this and it's disrupting that. But I think that it's just overused. A lot of these things aren't necessarily disruptors. They aren't rapidly transforming an industry. I, and I think that the word disruption itself, you know, change happens over time. Um, and of course, there are disruptive events that are unforeseen and change things. But I don't necessarily know whether it's the best use of the word uh, to apply it so broadly as it is uh, frequently being used. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, for, for I think when you get to the point when you, where you see in press releases these days people saying to disrupt the disruptors, uh, it starts becoming a bit uh, meaningless in terms of in, in the way that people use it. I mean, I I'm an old fashioned person. I said we br bring back the terms leading edge, bleeding edge, and cutting edge, and now everyone can use those instead. Um, three different ways that you can disrupt an industry. Uh, but I suppose they're too complex for everyone to, to learn the, uh, the definitions of, so we're using a, a catch-all these days. Uh, I mean, I don't know what, what we would do, if, what we would replace disruption with if we, if we did lock it away. Sharon, have you got, have you got any, not to put the, you know, put the spotlight on you, but what, what, what do you think is a better word than disruption? Oh, I quite liked your your thought about cutting edge. Um, cutting edge sounds really cool. Plus, I have to do. I have to mention that it's actually serving life imprisonment in our fintech jail. So we locked it up, um, season one, episode ten, um, with uh, Theodora Lau, who is the founder of Unconventional Ventures, and her point was that as an industry and a society, we place so much value in disrupting the status quo and taking things away. It's never a zero sum game. Why can't we talk more about collaboration, working together, crossing the bridge so we can create more value for society and our customers? We're going to do something different, but then they just come out with yet another debit card or yet another app. So <laughs> our, our rationale for putting it away for life um, was that, you know, with this whole disruption and hustle culture mentality, um, people have been driven to burnout by endlessly trying to disrupt and spending all this time at work and showing off with all the new things that they're doing. And we were also quite bored of this word for a long time. You know, what are your thoughts about that now, you know, it's in our jail? Yeah, I think that, you know, disruptive as a word is frequently misused. I hear it all the time that people say, well, this is disruptive or these these people were so disruptive. And it's, well, no, disruptive doesn't mean inventive. It doesn't mean uh, innovative. It, it, it literally means disruptive, right? That there's an existing industry and that there's a new player that comes in and overtakes the players in that industry. And so I think because it's frequently misused, then it's also applied to all sorts of things. Like there's a new technology, let's call it disruptive. Well, if it is, it's a new technology and it's not really um, disrupting a particular market, then it's incorrectly applied. 
And so I liked your suggestion um, around cutting edge. I think that, you know, in certain cases, disruptive is used to describe things are innovative. I certain, certain situations, it's things that are unorthodox or things that haven't been seen before. Um, and in certain situations, of course, it is actually uh, dis- disrupting an incumbent party. But um, yeah, I think it's frequently, frequently misused and misapplied. Well, that's all we have time for for this episode of What the Fintech. Uh, thanks to Sharon and Lena for joining me. But before we sign off, we've got a chance, uh, a few minutes for socials and websites to plug. Um, so Lena, you're our guest. You, uh, you get to go first. Anything you want to plug? Yeah, I would just say check out, check out Moxtra on our LinkedIn and on our Instagram. We're creating a lot of interesting content um, showcasing different customers, different uh, use cases and how people are uh, really getting mobile app for their business and changing the way that they do business around their app. So excited to share that with you all. Brilliant. Uh, Sharon, what about you? Where can we find you online? Of course, you can find me at Fintech Kits. Just Fintech, the way you normally spell it, and kits like football kits, um, all one word. You can also just search for my name, Sharon Kamathi, on LinkedIn and send me a wonderful request as usual. Also, keep your eyes peeled for a couple of investigative pieces coming out next week. Uh, We don't want to spoil it, but maybe by the time this uh, podcast is out, they will be out. So do search for a couple of, of fun exclusives on the title. We don't want to give away what it's about just yet but yeah just search exclusive and, and you'll find it oh mysterious and intriguing um as for me uh you can find me on twitter at at ad hamilton 91 and on linkedin by searching my name uh, and also i'm going to be on a uh, webinar in collaboration with tableau uh, the data analytics presentation software company uh, next week about the power of data analytics in fintech based on the report i produced uh, earlier this year with fintech futures so uh, check that out live. And if you happen to miss it live, then watch it on demand and watch me try and bring in all forms of ancient history into a conversation about data analytics in financial services. As for FinTech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, on Twitter at, at @fintechfutures, and on LinkedIn just by searching FinTech Futures and looking for our gorgeous logo. If you like this podcast and our other episodes, then please feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service. We'd also really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find the podcast by writing a review or recommending us to a friend. Uh, Thanks, as always, for any and all support. We will see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech. Uh, But until then, goodbye. Goodbye.